So um, this story would have been fine if it had ended where we ended last night and where we just heard with the young son coming home and being received by his father and smothered in love and and in that smothering love his heart is renewed and he becomes alive again and he's found and the celebration begins and it's all wonderful happy ending would be wonderful i kind of imagine that at that point in the story jesus is speaking and if you've ever done public speaking, you can kind of sense and feel how people are reacting to you as you as you speak. Sometimes it's encouraging and sometimes it's off-putting. Um, I can imagine that Jesus is sort of looking out towards these Pharisees to whom he's really directing this story. And they're standing around like this. Or like that. Or like this. And they're giving him every possible body language sign that uh, they're not happy with him or his story, or the message of the story. Um, So perhaps with those kinds of feedback-y sort of gestures coming at him from the Pharisees, uh, he decides to add to the story. And so he adds this last little part that we're going to talk about this evening, the story of the elder son, who is only briefly mentioned at the very, very beginning of the parable, and now comes back to kind of haunt the story once again. So um, last night we ended with the father calling for a wonderful feast, a great feast to celebrate. And um, he's celebrating, it's important to remember, that not that the son has wandered back home, but that as he went out to meet the son at the edge of town, so full of compassion and love, and he smothers the boy with love, that the boy changes and his prepared speech becomes one of, not of manipulation and coldness, but of love and of responsiveness. And he realizes how much his father loves him. So, yes, let's celebrate. Let's kill the fatted calf. So let's describe a little bit that party. What was it like? What was this feast like? In the Middle East, things don't change very much from century to century or millennium to millennium. And um, even today, the party that this man had for his his uh, lost son come back would have been very much like uh, parties that are held even today there. So it's this is a reasonably wealthy family. We know already they've got they've got a fatted calf that they can kill. They've got servants. They've got slaves. Um, they have land. They have property. They have a, a lot of presumably money available to them. And so this would have been really, really a big party. Uh, and what would have happened is um, within his household, within his home, which probably was pretty sizable, they would have had, you know, all the village uh, adults. They would have had, especially the village elders, the important people, you know, the father's uh, comrades, is, is the people he hung around with. And of course, probably their wives and, and their children down to a certain age, probably um, much, much more, nothing below, below adolescence. So the little kids are outside playing and uh, with sticks and rocks and, and hula hoops and whatever. And, and inside the house, there's uh, musicians. They've got somebody with a drum and they've got somebody with a stringed instrument, sort of like a guitar or something like that. And, and they've also got people who are tr- moving around the crowd and they're singing. And, and from the windows are open, the doors are open so people can come and go. And the music and the sound of the drum are traveling out across the across the village and beyond the village even. 
And all those little kids, they're outside and they're enjoying the music. It's so much better than than what they've got on their iPhones because it's live, you know, and they're having fun out there playing and having a great time. And inside, everybody is happy. And, and in those kinds of gatherings, and those kinds of parties, they would have certain women who, who were really good at letting out these, these cries of joy. We have nothing like it in our Western society, I don't think, really. But, but in other places, they still do that. You know, women will, maybe in, um, women will still have this, this uh, wonderful cry of joy that, that is just sound. It just comes from their, from their guts, you know, and comes out of their mouth. And women would occasionally be letting go with one of those whoops of, of joy. Um, maybe kind of like the, the gritos in the, um, the ranchero music, you know. I don't know, something like that. Who knows? Um, and so that's kind of the, the party. And, and inside as well, they'd have their, their servants or their slaves would be serving the people. And because they were servants and slaves, they would be very discreet and they would not engage the guests at all. They were not to, to socialize with the guests. They were just there to, to make sure everybody was well served. And, um, and the, if the, 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 the host of the party ha- has a son, an elder son, then his special responsibility in the household is certainly to greet everybody, but also to kind of act as the head waiter, not just supervising the, the slaves and the servants, but, but to show to the guests that they are so important to the father, to the host, that even his own son would serve them. And that would be the primary responsibility of, of the elder son in a family like this. He would be greeting everyone. He would be bringing the trays of brownies and things around to everybody so everybody gets a sweet and everybody gets this and that. And he would be engaged with them. And that would be his job, to let the people know that that they are so happy that these people are here, so honored that even the eldest son is willing and able to serve them. They, are, they, they merit that kind, of, that kind of grace and attention. So that's kind of how the party would look. Um, and the, this particular story, so we do have an elder son. As the party begins, he's out in the fields. He's kind of a long ways away. So he doesn't know about all that's happened during the day. And he, that doesn't, out in the fields doesn't mean he was working. If this is a wealthy family, he was just out there supervising, you know, the, the guy, you know, with the watch that's making sure everybody gets their work done, but doesn't work himself. He's got a shady place to kind of sit and enjoy his lunch and, and everything. But anyway, the day ends and he comes home. And if the story were to go the way it should go, then upon returning to his village, of course, he would be hearing the music from a long way off, especially the drums. You can hear drums a long, long ways away. And so he'd come in, and he's hearing all of this, and he knows the village is having a really big party. There's lots of noise, lots of commotion, lots of activity. He can see the lights, and he can hear the music, and he can hear the singing, can hear the commotion of the crowd. And that must be really exciting after a boring day out in the fields overseeing a bunch of servants or slaves, you know, taking care of whatever. And maybe that fatted, fatted calf, I don't know. And um, so as he gets closer, he's getting more and more excited. And once he realizes that the party's in his own home, 
then the first thing he would do would be to go into the home, greet his father, and then start greeting the guests, and then start serving as the, the, the head waiter of the whole thing to make sure that everyone knew that they were welcome and that they were respected and that they were being honored by being served by the elder son of the family. Meanwhile, the father is with uh, everybody and, and uh, the others are there as well. That's what should happen or have happened at that particular party. But we know that's not really what happens. We've heard this story enough. So the elder son in the real world, in the story that Jesus tells, he approaches his home and he hears all the noise and he's happy and excited and he knows something big is happening in his home and he gets right up to the near the home and here are all the kids outside playing, you know, and dancing to the music outside. So he asks one of the kids, what's going on here? What's the party about? What's the party about? This is so exciting. We're going to be dancing and eating and drinking. It's going to be great. And then the kid says to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him in peace. And this is like a knife to the guy's heart. He hates that kid. He despises his little brother. What he did to us. What he did to our dad. And he's home. And he's being feted. And all this is for him. And they even killed the fatted calf for him. This is unbelievable. This is terrible. This is a disaster for him. He's shattered by this news that this little kid tells him. He's probably in tears. And what's going on here? He can't understand it. This is not how things work. If someone goes off and wastes the family money in a foreign land among pagans, probably with a bunch of prostitutes, and they come home, it's supposed to be kazeza. Break that big pot. Somebody screams, maybe him. You are dead to us. Get out of here. Never come back. And he comes home and there's no price to pay. He gets a party with a fatted calf and all the village elders. It's all together too much. And he refuses to go in. He refuses to go in to the party. He won't go in to his father's house. He won't greet the village elders. He won't act as mater d. He won't honor the guests. He won't serve his stupid, idiot, despicable, miserable, sinful, pig-loving little brother. Because as mater d, as head of the house, he would be expected to serve his little brother too, who's part of the party. We can we can see it. We can understand his feelings. We can understand the devastation. This is so crazy. You know, he's a sinner. The worst of sinners. He consorts with pigs. And he's being honored with a feast. And everybody that's listening to the story 
gets him. They probably feel the same way. So, a couple things about that little boy's speech that's worth paying attention to. The boy does not say, your brother has returned. Because in Hebrew, the word to return and to repent are basically the same word. So he doesn't, as Jesus is telling the story, he doesn't want to give any indication that this boy, the younger boy, has repented of his own free will. That out there, when he's with the pigs, he saw the light and he decided to repent and he felt bad about what he did to his dad and his brother and his village. Uh-uh. He doesn't say he returned. doesn't say he repented. It says he's here. It just says he's here. And your father is killed the fatted calf because he has received him in peace. He has received him in peace. That word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And it means a lot more than peace, guys, or the absence of war or the absence even of injustice. It doesn't mean the absence of of, uh, terrorists in our country. It, it, It doesn't mean that I'm having a nice day. You know, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, and I'm having a nice walk in the woods. It's much deeper than that. Shalom for the Hebrew people, then as now, is a deep wish, a deep desire that the other person, or the actual reality, that a person is whole, that they are right with themselves, right with God, right with their neighbor. That they are at peace because, because there is nothing um, hateful or odious or dark or vengeful or self-righteous, you know, being eating them up from the inside. To be at peace in the shalom sense is to be one. One with God, one with our family, one with our village, one with our neighbors. In a deep, deep, whole sense. It means, especially in this case, when that boy says, your father has received him in peace. It means the father and the boy are now one again. It's father and son again. With nothing evil or bad between them. They are deeply, deeply reconciled. That's what it means. The little kid probably didn't quite get that. But when Jesus is telling the story, that's what he wants his listeners to understand. And they would have understood it. And this shalom between the father and the younger son is part of what makes this older son go ballistic. It means that the younger brother is once again sharing table fellowship with his father and with his kin and with his village. He's a sinner, isn't he? How can they be consorting with a sinner? How can they be eating with a sinner? How can they be partying with a sinner? 
How can they be sharing from the same dish with a sinner, especially a notorious and terrible sinner? And he didn't have to pay any price for that sin. It also means the younger son once again has his place in the family's financial and legal affairs. Remember, he wears the signet ring of his father. And that's pretty intolerable, that kind of peace. He's fully restored even on a a legal financial level. And finally, this elder son knows that when that boy tells him that his father and his younger brother are at peace with one another, it means that when he comes in, if he were to come in to the banquet, as the older brother, he would be required to serve his younger brother. All of this is obnoxious to him. And so in his explosive wrath, he does the unthinkable. He commits a sin as evil, as dark, as horrible, as mortal as that of his little brother when the story began. The elder son, by refusing to enter the family home and join the father in this celebration, and refuse to greet the guests, and refuse to serve as head waiter. It is his way of standing outside the home and saying to his father and to his brother and to his family and to his village, you are dead to me because I'm good and you're consorting with a sinner. You are dead to me. He is killing his relationship with his dad just as surely as the younger boy did at the beginning of the story. He's killing his relationship to his family, to his kin, to his village. He's taking away his own identity as his younger brother did by saying, I no longer have a father, I no longer have a family, I no longer have a village. He's dying on the inside, right in front of our eyes. And it only takes a few moments for his stand against his father and family and village to spread into the feast. As words spread, you can imagine the music stopping, the dancing stopping, no more yip-yips of joy from the ladies. No more drum. Silence. As everybody looks at the Father, waiting to see what he will do with this newest rebellion within his own family. There's one more thing about this son's rebellion. It's different in one way from that of the younger son. The younger son committed his sin against his father Within the household, privately, he goes to his father. He makes his demand, and off he goes. This son does it right in middle of the feast in front of the entire town. 
He commits his sin in front of everybody. He commits his sin against everybody. Everybody knows it. And the shame he brings down upon everybody, especially the Father, is immediately known and visible by everyone. And that public display of rebellion because of the sense of honor that a family in the Middle East would have made it even worse than the sin of his little brother. So, his sin, his sin happens right in the household, right in the village. The other kid's sin happens out in the wilderness. Do you remember the difference between the lamb that was lost in the wilderness and the lady's drachma that was lost in her house? This is it. That's why these three stories are one story. So everyone's waiting for the dad to respond to his son's shameful and public decision to not come in. The cultural expectation would be that the father would take a very deep breath. He would maybe restrain his anger. He would turn red. His blood pressure, if he had a way to measure it, would go skyrocketing. And he would have two choices, or one choice between two, two things before him. He could either demand that his slaves, his servants, go out and haul this kid in to the party inside, force him down in front of his father, and his father discipline him to the nth degree for the disrespect he's shown not only to him, but to his his guests of honor. Or he could wait. He could wait until... It was less embarrassing, perhaps, and the guests had gone home. But everybody would be waiting for him to do something very, very mean, very, very hard to discipline this older son for this terrible thing he's done. That is what a proper Mideastern father should have done, should do. But what does he actually do? Remember, this is a crazy father. This is a crazy in love father. Having already seen him react to his younger son, we can almost assuredly guess that his response to the elder son's evil, his sin, his disrespect, his disloyalty, his hatred, his you are dead to me, is not going to be very different. So, yet once again, the father does not demand that the slaves go bring the kid to him. He goes running. He leaves his guests. He goes running through the, through the house, out the door, to wherever this kid is standing on the edge of the village or at the edge of the house. He goes out to him, racing, running. doesn't say that in Jesus' version, in Luke's version, but it must have been the same. Hiking up his skirts yet again, like a mother, like a woman. Yet again, 
bringing shame and dishonor upon himself, humiliation upon himself, so that he can go to his son who has sinned so terribly and entreat him, beg him, beseech him, plead with him, appeal to him to come into the feast. This is not what a good father should do. This is not what a good father should do according to the cultural standards of the time. And this is not what people were expecting when they're listening to Jesus tell this story. Well, he screwed up on the first boy. Maybe the second one, he'll do it right. You know, 20 lashes or something. But this father's crazy in love with the older boy too. He loves him. He loves him from the gut out. So, he shows to this older boy that he's not going to scold him. He's not going to punish him. He's not going to scorn him. He's not going to give him 20 lashes. The word... In Greek, is that he goes and stands beside his son. So the image is not son here, father here, finger wagging. The image is son here, father here, arm over his shoulder. As equals, preserving his dignity while everybody's watching holding him close and entreating him, come in to the feast. Don't do this to yourself. Come into the feast. So at that tender moment, you would think, oh, this boy, like the other boy, is gonna, his heart's going to melt. He, he never knew his father loved him so much that he would race in front of people and lift up his skirts and act like a little kid and come and love him and hold him and, and treat him as an equal. Never would have guessed that would happen to him. So surely his heart's going to melt too. Surely he's going to see the light. Surely he's going to repent and, and feel terrible about what he's already said and done to his family as his sinful younger brother did. But sadly, no. He has a speech too. And maybe with tears in his eyes, I don't know. But it's a speech filled to the gills with self-pity. Poor me, poor me, poor me. Pobre de mí. My Spanish, Mexican friends are always saying, Oh, Padre, pobre de me. Yeah, I know, it's really hard. So it's not just self-pity, there's also self-righteousness. You know, I'm so holy, I'm so good, I've been the good boy all my life. What is, what is what he says. All these years, I've served you and obeyed you. He 
is not recognizing his father as a father. He's seeing him as a master. Serve and obey. Okay, son, clean the floor. Okay, son, do this. Okay, son, do that. Okay, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it. He's he's picturing himself as a slave or as a servant to his father, not as a son. He has fulfilled the law. I've obeyed every law. But in that obeying, he never loved his father. It was all just obeying. Because of this, he insults his father. The father who has just shown this extraordinary, humiliating expression of love for him. Crazy love for him. He insults him. What was missing at the beginning of his speech? The simple words, Oh, Father. Or, Oh, my Father. Essential to show respect and affection and love in his culture. He leaves it out. He is not recognizing his father as a father. He insults him. He's rude to him. Right to his face. This is... This is death. He's killing his relationship to his father with those terrible words or lack of words. And then he goes on to accuse his father of favoritism. One of the worst things you can accuse a father or a mother of. You like Johnny better than you like me. You love him more than you love me. If it's a joke, it's cute. But if you really believe it, It's a terrible thing to say to your mom or your dad. Because we know moms and dads love their kids. Even with their faults and their failings. So he accuses them of favoritism. You give this miserable brother of mine a fatted calf, a grain-fed calf. And what have you given to me across the years? Not even a goat for me and my friends. Who's his, who's his support system? Who's his family now? It's not his brother. It's not his dad. Probably never been. It's his pals. You now his drinking buddies. His frat brothers. Friends. My friends. Remember the Hebrew word for that? Habarim. Jesus clearly sees this boy as one of those Pharisees. He's talking to them. So he's so filled with hatred for his little brother, he does not call him his brother. He calls him your son, that son of yours. And then he goes on to slander his brother. He's so filled with hate towards this little kid. Well, not so little. He's so filled for hate for his little brother, his younger brother, that in front of everybody, he accuses his brother not just of wasting the money and the riches of the family in a foreign land among 
the heathens, he adds to it something he does not know. Because he hasn't been around to hear the story. He was out in the fields all day. Carousing with prostitutes, harlots. He's been sleeping around with pagan women. And he doesn't know that. It's slander. No one else has said that. It's slander. He just slanders his brother. And in doing so, yet again, he's cutting off. He's killing his relationships. There's no possibility of him reconciling as long as he feels that way, both towards his dad and towards his brother. His hatred is killing him. It's like a cancer inside him. We can see the the poison pouring out of his mouth. And all in all of this, in all of this hatred, this selfishness, the poor meanness, the rejection of reconciliation, the breaking of relationships, the shattering of hearts, he still sees himself as righteous. I'm the good guy here. Aren't I? And like a good Pharisee, he would never lower himself to share table fellowship, to eat from the same table, the same cup, the same plate, the same bowl. As a sinner like his little brother, that son of his father's. Look how good and holy I've been my whole life. I've obeyed all the rules because I'm afraid of my father who's a master and not really a father. So that's pretty grim. It's really grim. We thought we had the good, you know, we were done with all this two nights ago, but here we are again. And the father, gosh, you can just imagine him standing there listening to all this evil pour out of his son's mouth, trembling with hatred. And he's holding him and holding him and holding him. And he finally says, He gives him the respect that the son didn't give him. He begins by saying, my son. But in the the Greek, Luke uses a different word than the word son that he's used all the way along. He uses the most tender form of the word son available in Greek, probably coming straight from the Hebrew. It's It's the same word Mary uses for Jesus in the temple after he's been lost. Oh, my son. Um, My dear son, my baby, my... I don't know how you... We don't have anything like it, I don't think, in English. Um, I love my Mexican parishioners. I love the many endearments they have, the words they have for their little ones. You know, the little kids are, mi rey, mi reina. Mi principe. You know, they're always building up their kids with these beautiful words. My culture would look at my mom and say, what? <laughs> um, but he calls him, my, my son, my dear son, my boy, my baby. I don't know. And he doesn't chide him. He doesn't say, you 
terrible things are coming out of your mouth. He doesn't say how disrespectful, you've been so disrespectful. He just ignores it and returns the rudeness with immense kindness and love, my son. He reaffirms the true intimacy that he has for this boy. And he does the same thing with that expression, that son of yours. When he refers to him in his little speech, he says, your brother. He's my son. He's your brother. He's been restored to us. We found him. He was lost and we found him. He was dead. Now he's alive. He's ours. He's our brother, our son. Um, And then the father does one little bit of correcting. The elder son, when he talks about this party in his little speech, he says, you know, you throw a party killed the fatted calf for him. And the father corrects him. First of all, that's not what the little boy told him. It wasn't for him. It was because the father had him in peace again. So he says to him, he says to him, um, I'll find my place here. He he, he said that the feast we're celebrating is because your brother was lost and is now found. I found him. He's celebrating the father finding the boy. Your brother was dead. And I've covered him with love and brought him back to life. He's celebrating not the boy, not his return. He's celebrating that he had the great grace and privilege of finding his son and loving him back into life and then knowing peace again. So then we have the next question. How does the older son respond to this newest appeal from the father. Your brother was lost. We had to celebrate. Your brother was lost and now is found. Your brother was dead and now he's alive. We have to celebrate. Does the elder son melt in tears and say, God, what an idiot, what a terrible person I've been. I now see my sin. I now return to my father. I now go into the feast. I now greet the village elders. I now serve everyone here as the eldest son should, including my little brother. Or does he stay outside and walk away from his people and die? Jesus does not tell us That's where the story ends. After four nights, that's where the story ends. We don't know how this kid 
responds to his father's love. Crazy love. And we never will. We'll never know. But what Jesus is doing here is he's facing down these Pharisees who've been standing there like this the whole time. And as he gives these last lines, he's looking straight at them. And he's saying to them, Yeah, there are a lot of sinners. We've lost a lot of our flock. It's your job and my job as pastors, as leaders of the people, as agents of God's mercy, to go out and find them and when we find them and when we bring them back to life, to celebrate and to eat with them. How can we have a party celebrating their return and keep them out? Look at these sinners here, this tax collector, this prostitute, these these people of the land that have been lost. Look, they're found, they're alive. They love God again. They pray again. Their hearts are renewed. Come celebrate with me, for God's sake, come on in. Don't stand outside. Don't walk away. It's a mortal sin you're committing here in your righteousness, in your goodness, in your holiness, in your obedience to a God who is a master, not a father to you. Come in to the feast. Please, come on in. And we know from the rest of the gospel that at least a fair number of them stayed outside. And they end up joining in the plot to kill Jesus. Probably not all of them Probably not all of them by far. We can only hope and presume that a fair number of the Pharisees came to Jesus and followed him and listened to him and understood what he was saying. But enough of them didn't that they that their self-righteousness and their presumed holiness And their obedience to the law of God and not to the love of God led them to do something really, really terrible, shattering, mortal. So they stand there having to decide, are we masters of the law? Or pastors of the lost. So all this gets back to the questions we opened with. What is God like? Who is God for us and with us? What then is God's real name? The answers from this story are God, the true God, the real God, the God that created the universe, the God who created our world, the God who created us, the God who 
who has loved us into existence, each one of us. This God is a shepherd to us who in crazy love will go anywhere to find us and bring us home. This God is a housewife who will do anything to find that lost coin. Valuable. Always, whether it's lost or not lost, it's valuable. It doesn't lose its value because it's a sinner. And she will look for it for love of her family. And God is that tender father who lifts up his skirts like a mother and acts like a crazy boy who is so in crazy in love with his sons and his daughters that he embraces them, terrible sinners that they are, and kisses them and kisses them and kisses them and says, let's have a feast. For you were lost and you're found. You were dead and now you're alive. That's what God is like. Who is God for us? God is the one who pitches his tent among us to give you a better translation of that first line from John's Gospel. Who pitches his tent among us and teaches us in flesh and blood, word and deed, just how much he does to find us, to bring us back to life and invite us into joyful celebration that lasts forever. What is God's name? God's name is mercy. Full stop. So all of this, in a way, is preparation for tomorrow night as we celebrate the Sacrament of Reconciliation. All of this is the examination of conscience. There's so many things that we can apply to ourselves. Each one of the characters teaches us something about ourselves, our weaknesses and our strengths. You know, we're like all of them. We're like the father, we're like the woman, we're like the good shepherd, we're like the sons, we're like the lost sheep. All of us in all kinds of different ways. So tomorrow night, it'll be very simple service. It's not going to be one of those long examinations of conscience where, you know, you're asked, how many times did you say God's name in vain? I'm going to do that. Hopefully, this has been the examination of conscience, examination of life. But if you want a few questions to sort of set the scene for tomorrow, are we law abiders? Or are we good shepherds, mothers, and fathers? Do we accept God finding us? Or do we need to save ourselves? Do we eat with the sinner? So a couple of, a uh, few more words. Um, giving credit where credit is due. I want to get, say a few words of thanks to Father Vincent for inviting me. Uh, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, he cared for me like a good shepherd for a lost lamb when I got stuck in a little town in France called Tonnerre. Um, brought me home, fed me, <laughs> cared for me, healed me, got me back on my feet. Um, it's been a privilege to be invited, and I'm so grateful for that invitation. 
Shirley, Shirley, thank you for all your hard work. You don't know how many emails went back and forth between Spokane and Albuquerque. Um, Gmail must have been going crazy with our trying to figure out how to do all of this and make it work. And for all your work here, uh, making the hospitality of this parish visible and incarnate through your work and your help. And the same for our hosts every night, the people who've put on the little dinners and the uh, gatherings, and our musicians with your talent sharing your heart, your voices with us. It's lovely. And uh, finally, to St. Therese, who uh, inspires us and teaches us so much about the little way, and uh, hopefully who's been a part of our prayer this week and will be in the days to come. And I want to say one more little word about how not in- I'm not as intelligent as I look. I'm not as smart as I look. A lot of, perhaps the majority of what I've shared with you comes from a wonderful scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey. He's died a few years ago. But I met him, got to know him uh, when I was on sabbatical in Jerusalem at Tantur, which is an ecumenical institute. And he was uh, taught there. And um, he lived almost all of his adult life in the Middle East. So he does his interpretation of the Gospels based on his experience in those villages. So a lot of this comes from his sitting down and spending days and nights with Middle Eastern people in Lebanon and Egypt and uh, Palestine, Jordan, all over that area. Um, his name, again, is Kenneth Bailey. This particular book's easy to read. It's not too, too academic. It's called The Cross and the Prodigal. It's really lovely. And so I'm grateful to him and to his hard work over the years. And now we're going to listen to a little bit of God's praise, and then we'll pray, and then we'll feast. Am I forgetting something? Oh, okay. Please stop.